as we settle back into our study, not only in Ephesians, but also this study in subjection and how we see this with Christ. As we're singing and we're singing about this glorious power of Christ and his kingship, um, I can't help but think of, you know, how, how would a modern day uh, director, movie maker, you know, if they were rewriting the script there, what, what would that look like? You know, I think of the, you know, all the Marvel movies, right? And all the, you know, the, the lights and the sounds and the thunder and the, you know, it'd just be this just absolutely spectacular scene. Maybe, you know, like something out of Thor, right? You know, where the heaven rips open in half and the, the light comes and coming out of the heavens is the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. Just absolute spectacular glory, power. Just the, the, the sheer sight would, would put you in awe and on your knees. Well, that's not how Jesus came. It's not how he came at all. Now, he will come back that way. But that's not how he came. He came as this tiny little baby in a very unspectacular, very unglorious scene. This just reminded this week in, in, in reading a couple stories and some of our traditions. And, you know, we, we read the, the story... Um, the greatest Christmas pageant ever, every, every year. And, and part of this story is this new family who's you know, never been to church. They don't know about Jesus. And so everything's new to them. And, and it's fresh. And they would have kind of the same questions or common questions that anyone might have. Like, hey, the... the the Son of God is going to come into the earth, incarnate. Well, what's that going to look like? He's a king, right? He's a king. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. That's his name. Um, and he's going to come. Well, you would expect this, this pageantry, right, for the king. Uh, we have the monarchs in Britain that every now and then we get a, a little glimpse at what it looks like when a, a baby's born and that baby's going to be the future king and there's a lot of hoopla and not with Jesus. Um, and, and, and these kids, the herdmen, they're, they're appalled because, you know, Mary and Joseph are trying to find a place to stay for the night and, and there's no place for Jesus? I mean, Jesus? Um, no, there's no place for the king, the Messiah. Uh, there's no place for Mary and Joseph. There's no place for, for Jesus as this little tiny baby to be born. So the baby's born in a manger, in a, in a barn. Now, that is so cute and sweet when you 
look at like a, a little scene like over there, you know, on the manger and it's, you know, it's, it's got, you know, the green and it's warm and it's so sterile and comfy and nice. Well, that's not like what barns are, are they? We have people in this church who have barns and I don't think you would want to spend the night in their barn. I don't think you would like to smell the smells in that barn. And, and the people that we have in this church have, you know, one animal or two and the barn's pretty clean. But we're talking about like, you know, a place where you would smell things that, well, quite frankly, we've probably never smelled before and would never want to. That's where Jesus was born. It's, it's an, amazing, an amazing picture to behold. We've, we've been looking at Ephesians. We've been studying this, this passage for this, this little church. And, and the exhortation in Ephesians 5.20 is that they're to be subject to one another. Subject to one another. Why? In the fear of Christ. And as I mentioned before, we're going to look more into this in the coming weeks. And the very next verse gives us um, an example of, well, how should we be subject to one another? Well, let's take a fundamental relationship like husbands and wives. And so here's a picture that the, the wives enter to be subject to your own husbands. And every, you know, good feminist, I say that in jest, um, the little cackles on the back of their neck are already raising because wives be subject to your own husbands. How dare you? Um, well, they forget the next part, which is part of the same sentence as to the Lord. Um, you're not subject to your husband at all. You're subject to the Lord which makes you subject to your husband, which also, by the way, let's not forget, we're subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And the church is subject to Christ. So also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands are then to love their wives. How? As Christ also loved the church. And, and there we are faced with the question, well, how did Christ love the church then? And it begins with, in verse 25, and he gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ was born to die. Jesus Christ was born to serve. Jesus Christ was born to, to be subject to the realities of humanity. The, the realities of the smells in the barn, the realities of coldness, um, the elements of, of the area, being hungry. Because Jesus had a, a mission. Jesus had a, a point and a purpose. Of course, the, the difficulty with Christmas time is all the, the confusion that comes into it, right? Whether you have a, a cute story, a cute tradition, um, or even the things that are, are just blatantly trying to undermine the truth of Christmas. This is the time that we celebrate the birth of Christ. 
I mean, how, how dare you hijack somebody else's story? I mean, think about that. Somebody else's history. I mean, it'd be like me going into, you know, this, this massive, amazing, rich, historically country of India and say, that's beautiful. You guys have amazing traditions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it all. We're, we're going to do it my way. Why don't you go find your own way? If you want to come here, you do it our way, right? Well, that shows you, again, part of the, the mission to, to undermine and destroy what truth is. This is why we make such a point out of, out of, out of false teaching. This is why over and over again this comes up, and it comes up because the Scriptures constantly warn us about false prophets, false teaching, what truth is. Our truth is in Scripture, not in the greatest Christmas pageant ever, not in Charles Dickens, right? I mean, these are fun stories. These are good stories. But let's be very, very careful that, that we don't conflate or confuse the story, which we do. That's kind of the nature of of these add-on stories, you know, veggie tales can be cute and all, but then it gets out of hand and, you know, you don't want to grow up thinking and praising the wrong thing. I mean, we have a lot of wrong views in our heads because we put a lot of wrong views into our minds. What goes in is going to come out. We, we, we wrestle with this idea of, of Emmanuel, which literally literally means the man God. The Hebrew name for Jesus is man God. He's the, the God man. This, this is the, the hallmark of Christianity. The triune Godhead of who, of, of who God is, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, the three in one. That is what Christianity is. That's what separates us from everybody else. And if you don't believe in that, you're wrong unequivocally. There's no, well, there's other ways to think and believe. No, there's not. This is why people hate Christianity because it's exclusive. It's exclusive. We, we don't share beliefs. The Bible is very clear about that. That is why the Israelites were commanded, you do not go and intermarry with others. It wasn't because of race. It wasn't because of color of your skin. It was because they had different religions. And they were going to raise your kids believing the wrong things, even if it was just a little bit, even if it was just a skew. And if you're not sure, just look at the, you know, the, the, the life of Ishmael and Esau and see the, the history of their families. Remember, they were raised Jewish, right? They were raised with, with the law. And we see the perversion then of, of the gospel and, and the beliefs that followed. And so we need to come to Christmas. We need to come to God's word. And, and we want to we wanna enjoy the richness of, of what's happening here. Because Christ has come to save us from our sins. What a beautiful, amazing thing. But he didn't come with this power. 
He didn't come wielding the sword to defeat and crush the enemies. He defeated and crushed the enemy, Satan, with his death. With his death. And he crushed him by being resurrected through life. So today we're going to look at five examples of the, the fulfillment. We, we looked at the, you know, the plan, right? What was the plan of Christmas? What was the plan of subjection we talked about? Um, we, we today are going to look at the ultimate fulfillment of this great plan. This great plan of subjection, we're going to see it in five ways. First, we're going to see the incarnation of God. The incarnation of God. Second, we're going to see the image of God. The image of God. Then we're going to see the firstborn of God. The Lamb of God. And then finally, the gift of God. So the incarnation of God, the image of God, the firstborn of God, the Lamb of God, and then the gift of God. Remember, this is the greatest story, real story. Let's be perfectly clear. This is not a myth. It's not a legend. This is the real, accurate, historical truth. Um, this is the greatest story ever told. The proclamation of this story, we, we read earlier that this is, that this is a child that's born that people are worshiping. Right? We, we, we only worship one, right? We, we don't worship multiple gods. We worship there's one God and one God only. The great Shema in Deuteronomy. None other are to be worshipped. We are a, a monotheistic belief system. One God, one God alone. And so Jesus comes and they're worshipping him. He's either God or they're worshipping something false. To the extent then that people believe that, well, the king, Herod, he believed it. Which is something that we have to think about, which is people can know what's right, believe what's being said is true, and completely reject and deny it. Because that's what Herod's doing. Herod's relying on prophecy. I know what you guys read is true. So what did you read? Because I know it's true. Where's Jesus supposed to be born? Think about that for a second. To have that kind of confidence in, in the Old Testament scriptures. To follow it to its fruition. But not to worship and believe. But to go and destroy and kill. To fight it. We desperately want to see everybody follow Jesus. The fact is people will reject Jesus with a clenched fist and gritting teeth. They do not want to follow Jesus, his rules, his ways, his concepts. And even if they hear a story that sounds, wow, that's a gracious, merciful thing, they want to turn it into, well, how can I earn it? It's kind of what's happening with the, the Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol, right? Is, is, well, it could just be about total grace and mercy, but no, it's got to be into, what can I do to change my life to earn the merit of forgiveness? 
Scripture's, scripture's clear. You can't do anything. For by grace we've been saved through faith, not of our own. It's a gift. It's a free gift. The Christmas gift to us, the best gift that you had under your tree or on your mantle or in your stocking or wherever, the greatest gift that you woke up to was the blood covering for your sin. And that all was able to happen because of the birth of Jesus. Well, we talked about this was a prophetic. This was written about. Even King Herod understood in Isaiah 9, 6, we see that for unto us a child is born. He will be called. Now think about this as a name. Uh, we have some babies in the, in the room and babies will be coming and that kind of a thing. And uh, imagine if, okay, so an angel comes and says, this is going to be the name of your baby. Your, your baby's name is this. Uh, wonderful Counselor. It's ah, a good name. Mighty God. Mighty God. Um, everlasting Father. Never ends. Prince of Peace. Could you imagine? That's going to be your kid's name. It's kind of like Jesus. You know, He saves, right? He saves the world. Well, that is what was written about in Isaiah, that this, there's going to be this child, and this is going to be his name. And in his name is mighty God. That should have been an indicator that something unique and special was going to happen. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is why the nation of Israel had this great hope, this great expectancy of the Messiah. This Messiah, this one is going to be an amazing counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, the prince of peace. That was their great hope. Isaiah goes on. Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord himself will give you a son, and behold, a virgin. How will we know that this is the one? How will we know that the Messiah, that this is the baby Messiah who will be the mighty God, the everlasting father, prince of priests? Well, the Lord will give you a sign. That sign will be, behold, a virgin will be with child. That would be Mary and will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which again, literally in the Hebrew is man, God. This is the God-man. This is God with us. God with us. Unlike how the Greeks and the Romans rewrote gods, little gods, fake gods, their gods were people who were then personified into deities, right? And so, as we've mentioned before, their gods had all the human flaws. Narcissism, right? Nar arrogance, jealousy. All, all their, when their gods interacted with mankind, it was to play with mankind, to take advantage of mankind. This is again why this uniqueness of no, it's the other way around. God came from heaven to earth to serve mankind. What an absolutely unique description. Well, the first 
example we see as we look at this, again, this, this plan of subjection that the, the God-man, the king, the Messiah, was going to come on the earth and rule by serving, by dying, by being subject. How, how does that work? Well, turn with me to Philippians 2. And yes, we look at Philippians 2 over and over and over again because th- this is a, a cornerstone for us to understand. Cornerstone, Philippians 2. Not only how we live in, in, in verse 3, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. But the, the, the point and the purpose is because of how Jesus lived. The incarnation of God in the manger. The incarnation of God. God incarnate. God becomes man in the manger. How? What does this look like? Verse 5. Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God as being part of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, God the Father. Instead, he emptied himself. Now, scholars have been battling over exactly what this means. Well, it's hard to know exactly what that means. But this is what we know. We know that in his, in his divinity, in his godhood, that, that he emptied himself in a way that was so unique by taking the form of a bondservant, by being a slave to mankind. Just being made in the likeness of man. Just being in the flesh. I mean, you're the God of the universe. Do you know what a humble thing? Could you imagine? It's like, you know, being a king or a president or a CEO. I mean, somebody that would like, that's, that's beneath me. I, I, don't, I don't clean the toilets. He was born in the toilets. And, and so he empties himself on the form of this bondservant, a slave, to serve us. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even in his humanity, even to the point of death. And not just death, not just, well, he's going to live and die and kind of live this human life as some great social experiment. No, he came with the purpose from from minute one to be in subjection to mankind with, the, with an ultimate point and purpose to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was going to be tortured. He was going to be executed. He was going to put on, on display for public humiliation. Could you imagine having any kind of power at all and allowing your subjects to do that to you? You, you can't miss this. You will not be able to function in your marriage properly if you don't understand what real headship and leadership is. If you don't understand what subjection is and how it's driven from who Christ is. Because if you don't get that, then you're going to come out with a very perverted, twisted idea 
of headship. You, you have to come from a place of, well, what did Jesus do? What does it look like in, in Jesus? And then abandon everything else you know and start all over if you have to. I don't know what a man is. I don't know what leadership is. I don't know what a, being a good wife is. I don't know what being, being subject is. That's a great place to be. And then you come to the scriptures and humble yourself in obedience like Jesus did. Jesus was obedient as, as the incarnate God in the manger. He willingly gave himself up and suspended his privileges and powers. John 5.30. Turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do, this is, this is Jesus, part of the, the triune Godhead saying this, because we're trying to understand what does it mean to yield himself, to empty himself. I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is on a mission from the Father. Not on his own mission. He's not on a mission to, to wear nice clothes and to ride nice horses, drive nice cars. That's not his mission. Mission is to serve in John 6 38. For I have I have come down from heaven and do not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Heaven came down. I think maybe we've sang it or said it too much in a way where we don't even think about that statement that Jesus came down from his throne from his divinity from heaven to come down on earth as Isaiah 7 and 9 says to be Emmanuel the mighty God the man God on earth John 1 1 through 3 says it this way that that the word the word in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And John 1.14, and then that Word becomes flesh. Incarnate God in the manger. Wow. Just mind-boggling. And so the God-man in the manger then is fulfilled this plan of subjection is filled in the, fulfilled in the manger as Jesus temporarily relinquishes his throne to serve mankind. Well, the second fulfillment of the plan of subjection then is we see the image of God in the manger. The image of God in the manger. Colossians 1. Turn with me to Colossians 1, verse 15. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. So Jesus is, 
in the image of the invisible God, is the triune Godhead, the firstborn of all creation, before there was ever mankind, before there was a heaven and the earth, there was Jesus. And then by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Who else is going to be born again from the dead? Resurrected saints, resurrected followers of Jesus. If Jesus doesn't do it, then you're not going to do it. Because Jesus did it, we will be resurrected too, from physical flesh to spiritual. He is the trendsetter, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Do you realize that the first place in everything begins by being subject to everybody? Do, do you see that? I want to be in first place. I want to be number one. Then serve. Well, that doesn't sound right. That's not in the best-selling New York Times books that I read. No, it's in the best-selling book ever written by God. This is how you leave. This is what first place really looks like. The image of God the icon in the Greek is it's the perfect replica. It's, it's, it's a precise duplicate. It's a precise duplicate. So when we see that, that Jesus is the precise duplicate of the invisible God, this gives us again another little picture of what this triune Godhead looks like. Because that's a mind-boggling thing. How is the Trinity one? The Trinity one is, is one because it's the perfect duplicate. It's the perfect replica. And so when John 14 says, well, he who has seen me has seen the Father. See, Jesus isn't, isn't relinquishing who he is in totality. And, and that's part of the rub, right? Is we're trying to understand how the God-man comes to earth and is physical, but he's still divine. Well, because when he's on earth, he's still in the image of God while in the manger. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. They're one. That's why we say he's the God-man. They're, they're one. It's the same. We just sometimes we talk about the specific roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But don't ever forget, it's still one. It's not three different. It's one. Well, the third fulfillment of the plan of subjection is, again, we see this, this firstborn of God. Firstborn of God in the manger. We, we keep wanting to think in human terms, right? Of, of, of birth and how birth this is a unique this is a this is a birth from a, a, a virgin birth that's unique 
Um, so it's not the same. It's this is the God-man in human form. That's unique. These are different, different descriptions, different things. Not normal. Why? Because this is the God-man. This is a one-off. Okay. In Colossians 1.15, it says he's the, the, the firstborn of creation. What does that mean? It's from the Greek, the prototokos, which is it's a ranking. So we think in terms of the humanity of being born, this is actually more in terms of, of a ranking of role and purpose. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So in his ranking, in his purpose... The emphasis isn't on this idea of, of physical birth. It's, it's just, it, it's a ranking position. Um, and it's appointed in Hebrews 1-2, God himself appoints his son and he's the heir. And so the primary rank as firstborn above all others then is completely fulfilled. He is the Messiah King. He is the living example of physical and spiritual. And he's willingly subject to the laws of nature as he chooses. And so he can be born. He can live. He can be hungry. He can thirst. He can have emotion. He can weep. He can be be physically scarred and bleed and feel pain and die in his humanity. And in the power of his divinity, he raises again from the grave. So it's an and yes. Well, the fourth fulfillment of the plan of subjection that we see in the garden is, again, the Lamb of God is in the manger. The Lamb of God is in the manger. John 1.29 says, He was without sin. That this Jesus is born without sin. Well, the Lamb of God, the perfect, we studied last week in Leviticus that the, the Lamb needed to be perfect and spotless. Well, the only perfect and spotless was this God-man, this firstborn of God who was born in the manger, but not to be this, again, this militaristic king, but to be a Lamb. Well, that should be an indicator right away. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Time out. This, just, just imagine if, if, if there was a, a president running in, in the presidential platform. Okay, th- these, are the, these are the things I want you to understand. This is how I'm going to, to rule. And, and, and the president was up there and he was in a little, you know, little Fidel Castro, little, you know, mini military outfit, you know, and. And, you know, he had a, you know, maybe a cute little mustache or something like that. And he's like, I'm going to rule and I'm going to dominate and I'm going to crush. But we're gonna, right. You, okay. That would have a certain tone. Be a little bit different. He's like, well, I just want to come to you as a lamb. You're like, what? <laughs> and he's standing next to the other guy, right? Because they're in a debate. So this guy's like, I'm going to rule. I'm going to crush him. And this other guy's, well, I'm just here as a lamb. What does that mean? Well, uh, you know, I'm just, I, I'm, a, I'm a bond servant to the people. What? It's supposed to be a trigger for us to understand. 
that his purpose is not the same as this guy. He's, he's telling you. And, you know, if you were a good reporter in the back row, go, oh, what does that mean? What do you mean by lamb? Well, let me tell you what I mean by, by lamb. A, a lamb is, is the sacrifice. We tell the, the kids in, you know, the Ravensdale Academy, we tell them about Rocky the ram as being the, the servant leader. The leader begins with serving. Well, the ram is the, is the ultimate servant. How? By dying, by being sacrificed, by bleeding, by being put on the altar to pay for sin. That's how he leads. That's how he serves. And so the fulfillment of, of Jesus' subjection, when we going back to Ephesians 5, when we talk about, listen, husbands, I want you to lead your families. Not as the militaristic drill sergeant, as the lamb who would then die, die for his wife. And this is what Jesus does. He is the sacrificial offering, the perfect spotless lamb. Why is he born uh, to a virgin mother? Because there's no blood in the system from humanity. Sin comes from Father Adam through his blood that gets tracked down to all of us. Not in Jesus. Perfect. Born in perfection. Spotless. Wasn't born, conceived in sin, didn't live life in sin, was tempted, did not give in. And so, in this ultimate plan of redemption, Jesus' death and resurrection then is the ultimate completion of the plan of subjection because the Lamb of God is Jesus Himself. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible that the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace comes as a Lamb. Well, finally, the ultimate fulfillment, the plan of subjection is... Jesus is the gift of God in the manger. The gift that comes from God in the manger. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about. How do we get here? right? How do we get to this point of the shopping, the presents, the, you know, the just the, the gluttony of, of gifts. How, how do you turn something that's you know, sweet and kind and generous into something that just can become grotesquely disgusting? Well, it comes when you shift the, the understanding of what a good gift is and what the ultimate gift of Christmas was when Jesus is born in the manger, the, the, the gift part of the manger is not the Magi's gifts. That, that's, that's not the gift part. Yes, the Magi brought gifts. Kind and beautiful. They were giving these trinkets, these tokens to, to the king. 
gold. Gold bar would be nice. If you guys are ever wondering, I'm my stocking stuffer. Gold is cool. Um, I don't know about the frankincense and the myrrh. Maybe you need to go talk to one of your oil, you know, specialists and they can get you that stuff. But um, you could have that. You could get essential oils for Christmas. Or I can save you from your sins. Which one would you go for? Gold bar or save you from all your sins? All your sins that you ever did before can be forgiven. All your sins that you're going to do today, forgiven. All the sins that you're going to do tomorrow. And some of you got a long life ahead of you. Some of you not so much, but that's okay. Because we have eternity waiting for us. For those who have confessed to the Lord. There's a gift that's taking place in the manger. That gift is not the gold, the myrrh, the frankincense. The gift is from God. The gift is to us. Why? Because we've all sinned. There's none of us who are righteous. No, not one. We, we've gone over this, that we're, we're conceived in sin. We're, we're, we're wicked. Um, we need payment and atonement for our sin. And so... God in his perfect plan who has no desires for the blood of goats and bulls says, I have a plan. I will come down from heaven to earth and I will submit myself to mankind and I will give the world the greatest gift that the world has ever seen. Grace. Grace. A free gift that you don't deserve. That's the beauty. That's one of the beautiful pictures of Christmas that we celebrate is we get gifts from people and each other and gifts that we don't deserve or, or earn, right? Somebody gives you a gift. That's a cool thing. Gifts are fun. Gifts are cool. They're unearned. They're just given to you by people who love you, by, by family and friends. They're, they're free gifts. You don't have to pay for them. They're free. But God gives us this, this free gift of grace. You do not deserve heaven. I don't deserve heaven. I'm, I'm the hardest part of studying and, and every day and, and meditating on this is realizing just how worthless and unworthy I am. It, it's 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 hard at times. We'll, we'll be singing. You're just like, I, I can't believe that that God would die for me. I can't believe that it it would cover all my sins. It's it's, it's so humbling, and so God gives us this ultimate gift of here's forgiveness for your sin and. Here's, here's the trick. Here's what you got to do. Because there's always fine print, right? Okay, here's the fine print. Here's how you get grace. You guys listening? By faith. There's nothing you can do to earn 
this gift. Kids, you're going to get gifts today. You know what the last thing your parents want from you? Here, how much was that gift you got me? Let me pay for it. Oh, can I go rake some leaves and earn the gift? Those gifts are given out of, out of love. Moms and dads don't want anything back. The gift's already bought. The gift's already purchased. The gift is already paid for. Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. Sign, seal, and deliver. Doesn't need anything from us. Doesn't want anything from us. It's already done. It's, it's by faith. It's by faith, having that assurance, the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance that Jesus Christ lived, was born, lived as the God-man, died as the God-man, was buried and rose again. That's our faith. And we have conviction in that. That's faith, as Hebrews 11 defines. That's what faith is. Nothing that we do. The things that we do are an outflowing of love, not an earning of love. And that's why the picture that God presents to us as, as his children, as him the father and us as the children, is so important for us to understand. Be because we, we know as a father, as a parent, what, what grace means. And we know that it's nothing to be earned. That's what makes it so hard during those teenage years, right? Because the teenagers like that, that bucking, you know, bull just kicking and contorting and just anything they can do to get their parents off their back. And their parent just loves them unconditionally. It's just, showers them with grace and mercy because the mercy is the flip side of grace, right? The grace is getting a free gift you don't deserve. The mercy, which is probably better than grace, not getting what you do deserve. I'm very, very thankful that my dad had, was a, a, a merciful man because there were many things that I deserved that he didn't give me the wages of my sin. And I love that phrase, the wages of your sin. Why? Because you earn it. You earn that whooping. You earn it well. You earn the punishment. And so the fulfillment of this plan subjection is God comes in, Jesus comes in, humbles himself, beginning as a baby. He's the gift. He is the gift. We walk out of here every Sunday and it gets crazy out there. Be thankful that God gave us the gift. It's already done. And so our life, our obedience comes as a reciprocation of love. We do it because we love him back. We're so humbled. We're so grateful. And one of the ways we can give back is then by, you know what? How can I be like Jesus? How can I be like Jesus? Well, be subject to one another. 
Yeah. You don't know everybody that's in my world. Okay. Wives be subject to Whoa. Okay. We're going to get there. Um, but that's how you do it. And seeing that's the, was we can't get two seconds out of gristling at. Yeah, but that's hard. It's hard because we carry a lot of sin with us. But that's why we're going to fight like crazy. We're going to. We're going to work on being like Jesus. We're going to work on being the kind of leader Jesus was the leader who, although he was king, although he was mighty God, he was willing to put that aside, to lay that aside for the bigger gift of being the lamb. His power comes from being the lamb. Who is worthy to break the seal? Who's worthy to break the seal? It's the lamb. It's the lamb who's worthy to break the seal. Just think about that for a second. Of all the titles that Jesus has, that the go-to there is going to be because you served as a sacrificial lamb, that's what makes you more worthy. And then just think of what a good leader really would look like in this world. And that would be someone who had those marks of thinking of others as more important than themselves, right? Doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Living with a humility of mind. That would be an amazing thing for us then to give back to each other. Let's pray. Lord.